Hey, Storybound listeners. This week we have Mark Russell on the show, reading from his comic, Second Coming. In 2015, Russell made his comic book debut with his critically acclaimed reboot of the 1973-74 comic, Prez, about a teenager who's elected to serve as president of the United States. Following Prez, Russell was hired to write the Flintstones comic book series for DC Comics, winning two Eisner Awards, including Best Limited Series and Best Humor Publication. Russell followed up with another DC venture titled Exit Stage Left, The Snagglepuss Chronicles, reinventing the titular Hanna-Barbera character as a gay Southern Gothic playwright living in 1950s New York. For this, Russell won the 2019 GLAAD Award for Outstanding Comic and was nominated for the Eisner Award for Best Writer and Best Limited Series. Welcome, everyone, to Mark Russell. Hi, this is Mark Russell, and you're listening to Storybound. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Pod Agglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you're going to get to hear Mark Russell read from his comic, Second Coming, followed by a discussion about Mark's humorous, risk-filled career. This is the beginning of my comic book, Second Coming. And it starts with Jesus Christ writing his memoirs up in heaven. He's in a beanbag chair. He's got a pen with a fuzzy ball on the end. He's writing on a scroll, and this is what he's writing. In the beginning, God was lonely. So God created some human beings to keep him company. He named his new friends Adam and Eve. Of course, he not only wanted people to think of him as a friend, but also to worship him as their almighty God, not realizing that you can't really have both. I think this was the source of a lot of his frustration with the human race. That said, God loved his new human friends. He set them up in this beautiful garden and saw to all their needs. But God had this one really big hang-up. He didn't want anyone eating from the fruit from these two magical trees he'd inexplicably planted in the center of the garden. God is speaking to Adam and Eve and he says, Whatever you do, don't eat the fruit from this tree, for then you shall know good from evil. I'm not sure why he thought this would work. I can only imagine that being new to human beings, he didn't understand that you can't just tell people not to mess with the tree and then leave them alone with it. I mean, of course they ate the fruit. And God reappears 
to Adam and Eve who have just eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he says, You have eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do you know what an evil thing you've done? To which Eve replies, Uh, how could we have known until after eating it? Damn it, God says. Don't lawyer upon me, Eve. After that, God became a lot less concerned with people's needs. For the sin of eating the forbidden fruit, he cast Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And as extra punishment, he ordered them to become parents. But that last part really backfired, because Adam and Eve had millions of descendants who totally dicked up the planet. God designed the human brain to create art, to build temples, to make up wild stories. You know, things that will entertain him. But instead, people mostly use their brains to kill, enslave, and rip each other off. Maybe they were just trying to steal from each other what they used to get for free from God. I don't know. But they started murdering each other when there were like only four people on the planet. So that was a huge red flag. Soon families joined into tribes, tribes into nations, and nations into empires. And all this joining was simply to improve their efficiency at murdering and enslaving each other. Keeping the human race from devouring itself soon became a full-time job for God. I never saw him much after that. It seems a little silly now, kicking off all that pain, death, and misery just because God couldn't handle a little fruit theft. To keep the human race in line, God came up with an idea called law, which is really just sort of another word for revenge. And at this point, the scene shifts to an adulteress buried up to the neck, preparing to be stoned and the men gathering around with their stones to kill her. And Jesus writes, But the law didn't make them better people. It just made them feel better about their lack of mercy. The music you're hearing in this episode is by Dasein. That's D-A-S-E-I-N. And now for a commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Mark Russell. And now we return from our commercial break.
What you heard in the first half of this episode was a story-bound version of Mark Russell's comic, Second Coming. Mark has led a career full of humor and risk. It's these qualities that make up the success these past six years have brought him. But don't let us make up your mind for you. Listen to Mark Russell in his own words. So could you tell me a little bit about like kind of how you start off with Second Coming, like where you're going from, I guess, try and chart where you were going from Flintstones to Stagopus Chronicles to this. Like, what's that bent? I mean, I, I know your your first book, The Apocrypha. Oh, Apocrypha now. I did God is Disappointed in You, which is about just a retelling of the Bible. Then I did Apocrypha now, which is a retelling of the books that didn't quite make it into the Bible. You're right. So you're kind of taking off from that point with this one, right? Do you feel like as, as writing? Yeah, very much. I, I, I'm writing about the sorts of conclusions I made about Christian theology and about the history of Judeo-Christian God worship based upon what I learned while writing those books. Would you say that your take with this new one is an ideological dogmatic critique or is it almost have this like more Douglas Adams kind of bent where there's still some warmth to it? Or I don't know, do you feel like, where do you feel you are falling in line with how you approached it? Well, I feel like it's a response to what's going on in the world now in a lot of ways. I feel like We've kind of really only settled on two ways of getting people to behave, especially in this society, and that is either by bribing them or punishing them. And I feel like what I really wanted to talk about with Second Coming was how there's a whole other mess of tools in the tool chest other than basically imprisoning or paying people, you know, punishing them or bribing them. And I think that's what what Christ really represents in this comic book, is he represents somebody who realizes that that compassion and empathy are much more necessary to solving the world's problems than, you know, being able to, like, punch somebody or, you know, throw somebody into a plate glass window. It's almost like a comic book uh, Paradise Lost. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a, a superhero comic about the limitations of superheroes. And it ultimately becomes about the limitations of every approach to, to problems because Jesus's approach of like forgiveness and empathy is limited in certain ways too. But it's about not looking to the same solutions for every problem, expanding your approach to the world so that you realize that different problems require different solutions. And they're all probably incomplete visions of the world, but you use what is useful at the time, what is useful for a given set of problems and don't just think because you've got a hammer then therefore every problem must be a nail do you feel like this comic is a complete or incomplete solution for some sort of you know vision that you have i don't know necessarily your religious background or any if, if you grew up with texts at all or any sort of dogma like that but is that coming from a very objective view or is there a little bit more of a subjective I think it's entirely subjective. I mean, I, I, the objective part is that I, I do have a very much more developed understanding of the, the Bible scriptures, having written a couple books about it. But it's really more about my filter of those scriptures and what I think Christ probably tried to wanted to say, or what I think would be would have been useful for him to say if he were to able to come back and sort of fix his church on earth than it is about like, this is definitively the objective truth as, you know, or this is what the Bible actually says. So I I think that that really that 
everything I write is ultimately subjective, but it's subjective fueled by the objective reality I observe around me. Did you read any Douglas Adams? Yeah, I read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, it's it's that's what's something I'm I'm very much reminded in your writing because the way you're able to humanize characters in a way that I mean, I feel your take with Flintstones and Snagglepuss. I mean, that had to have been an aim of yours to just make these more three-dimensional characters in a way that is interesting. Like, why would you bring back those characters, like rescue them from someone's memory of what those cartoons were and what those characters were in order to relate? Like, why was Snagglepuss the vehicle for that? Yeah, and I I think it's a fair question. Um, I think one of the reasons why I've sort of gravitated towards these characters like the Flintstones or Snagglepuss is because they have a certain amount of cultural equity built into them. And also, you know, why I gravitate towards like Jesus Christ is they have in the Bible, they have cultural equity built in. People have like immediate like responses to them. They think they know these characters. They think they, you know, it triggers an emotional response in them. And then you can use that attachment that people already have to these characters to get them to look at the world a new way or to think to to get to them to consider something that they never would have considered without the sort of gateway drug of these characters they know and love. Isn't that what some people call blasphemous or inappropriate? Those are the words that I was reading that people use. Yeah, and I, as I write in the author's note of Second Coming, it's like, the, yeah, I mean, people get mad at me for that, but that's essentially what every author of every book in the Bible did. They took, because most of the books of the Bible were not written, you know, contemporaneously with the characters and the, the events they described. They were written hundreds of years after. So it's all more or less fan fiction. It's somebody taking a character that people know and love and trying to get them to look at the world through that lens, through the eyes of that character. Even the Bible works that way. So, yeah, I guess I guess it is blasphemous in the sense that all religious writing is blasphemous, and that it's blasphemous being just another word for surprising. It's it's not what you were expecting. The music you're hearing in this episode is by Dylan Sitz and Low Five. And now for our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound. And now for part two of our conversation with comic writer Mark Russell. My mother would always say that God in- invented laughter. So, you know, but it's so it's okay to joke if God's in on the joke. That was kind of her way of viewing it. Would you say God's in on the joke for anyone who's who has God in their life? Is, is God in on the joke or is he not with this, with Second Coming? And I think that the key is that the is the humor humanizing or is it dehumanizing? Right. And and I think in this case, the humor is humanizing. The subject of the humor is not like you as a, as a human being. It's not punching down on people who are too weak to or, you know, to change their fate. It's really the humor is oriented more about the institutions, the forces that control and manipulate and strip of us our ba- of our basic humanity. And I think that's what Christ is rebelling against in this comic. And so I think God is in on the joke because we are the uh, we are the, the ones who are being victimized by these institutions that claim to serve us. So how do you see Second Coming? Because we're talking, I know there are two issues. There's Second Coming number one and number two, correct? Yeah. Is there a three, four, or what's the scope for that? 
the ultimate scope i've written two series two six issue series of second coming one of which is out in book form the second series starts coming out in december but i i envision doing a four full series so when it's all done done and over it'll probably be 24 issues long did you have the third and fourth like sort of a rough idea in mind I had ideas from the very beginning for about three or four volumes for about three or four series, but I'd never imagined I would get past one because I I could tell when, you know, I was working with, with Vertigo at DC, they were only sort of doing it because they were being made to do it. And they were sort of begrudgingly like, like, oh, they were, they were, they were kind of approaching more like, wouldn't it be great if we got away with this once in our lives? And so I didn't really have much hope that it was, they were going to be willing to, to entertain a second or third issues. I got the sense that they were, they, they were going to consider it enough of an achievement if they got away with doing it once. So by going instead with Ahoy, I think it has a much better chance to get through the, all three or four you know, series. Yeah, I would say so. Especially if, if you ruffle up enough feathers with it, it's worth it. I mean, I think it's worth trying to get away with it. That reminds me of the story you had told me when you were on Storytellers Telling Stories, when we, um, you talked about when you were doing cable television and the things you were getting away with then. So it's really funny that you're doing, you're following the same trajectory you were doing as a kid, getting away with stuff. So yeah, and the the weird thing is that I never feel like I'm getting away with something. I never feel like I'm trying to pull one over on people. I just feel like this is what, you know, seems natural for me to talk about, to write about. It's everyone else who seems to feel like, oh, we're, we're, we're getting away with something. I, to me, it just feels like I'm just writing. I'm assuming you're not like sticking to some kind of version of the Testament, you know, are you trying to do like some sort of individual research or just going based off your own version of what you were, you know, absorbed growing up? Yeah, it's it's partially based upon what I absorbed growing up, sort of the critiques of Christianity and the and the Christian institutions that I grew up with. And so that's it's more really about that than the actual Bible. And so uh, we do a lot of flashbacks to Christ's childhood and other scenes weren't, which aren't necessarily even talked about in the Bible or, or just very briefly alluded to. But I developed them more as a sort of like a historical fiction because I, I want to use them to, to sort of give my critique of what Christianity has become and how people have been sort of like unserved by their, their institutions. And then the collisions of their lives just seem natural at that point. They all make sense. Yeah, humanizing. That seems to be what you have followed. I think that it also sort of informed the way I approach stories and that, it, you know, it begins with characters and then you, you build the story based upon the characters. That you figure out who these people are and what they want from life. And then that kind of tells you the story you need to tell as opposed to the other way around. Are there stories that come to mind where, and it could be historical fiction or not, where you felt uh, there was a missed opportunity to humanize it more or... Like I would like, for instance, I would say I love Monty Python, Life of Brian. I would argue they're not exactly humanized characters. They didn't have a whole lot of heart. They're kind of cruel characters. And, th and that's fine because it's parody, right? It's, you know, satire. So it's OK to be too two dimensional and sort of a, a harsh parody. Uh, in fact, it helps to be two dimensional. Sure. Uh, because, yeah, once you start rounding and humanizing the characters too much, then they don't they, they cease to be archetypes. 
But yeah, there is a danger if if that's not what you're trying to write. If you're trying to write like a, a story that mostly happens inside a person, and then that person's only two dimensional, then then you've got a problem. But you know, for like a um, say like an episode of Rick and Morty or something, it's I think they they they're very two dimensional characters, and you know they you know what you're going to get from those characters. But that really sets you up because then when there is like a humanizing moment, when somebody does sort of act against type or shows a moment of vulnerability, it really kind of throws you back. I think that's what allows Rick and Morty to survive is because they're constantly aware that they're two dimensionality, that then they become three dimensional as a result. A lot of it is like somebody, you know, the Rick character is like sort of infatuated with his own brilliance. But at some level, he understands that that's not enough. And that's like kind of his great tragedy. Yeah. Is the failure of his own brilliance to like come up with an explanation for himself. Have you have you had a chance to watch Midnight Gospel on Netflix? Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Well, how did that first episode hit you? I'm just curious, being because that complete disillusion of self, or that is what they would call ego death. Yeah, and I and I thought it was a really good introduction to the series. And yeah, you're right. It's about it is it sort of sets the tone because it is about like how you develop a view of the world beyond ego and how you learn to let go of your your biases and your desires as a template for understanding the universe and your spirit about how consciousness is just part of it's like more something that you experience than something you actually have or possess so it really set that up by i think my favorite one though was the very last one with what this mother who is dying of breast cancer and for her to have that sort of perspective and for her to sort of have come to terms with her own mortality and for him in real time, you know, having to both simultaneously, you know, grieve and cherish his mother as she's talking about her imminent death. To me, that was like, just, just floored me. On the surface, you think it's already starting outside of its shell. <laughs> you think it's because it's already proclaiming essentially, oh, I'm, I'm in this multiverse. I can pretty much I can die whenever I want. And it's fine as I as I'm living in the, the simulation. So, so is that, is that where you're headed? Or you do you think the next property, it'll be like Rocky and Bullwinkle and the black hole? You'll go into talking about. <laughs> no, I think actually where I'm headed is dealing less with like these already existing properties, these this intellectual property that's owned by other people and creating my own characters and creating more of my own sort of universes and stuff. I got a couple of projects that haven't been announced yet, but they're both creator owned and, you know, my own. I'm creating all the characters and stuff. So I'm taking a break from the um, from the fr- franchise properties. I do have a new comic out called Billionaire Island, which is about how billionaires build like an artificial island off the Gulf of Mexico so they can wait out the end of the world. And it's like well, the, the first sort of completely creator-owned comic that I've written where it's just my own sort of characters and my own story. And it's not building on, on any other sort of pre-existing IP. Thank you to Mark Russell for coming on the show. You can order Second Coming from your local book or comic seller. You should definitely check out Mark's other comics as well. The music in this episode was provided by Epidemic Sound. Thank you to Da Zine and Dylan Sitz and Low Five. Thank you to Jordan and Aaron for production help. And thank you, thank you, thank you to Tim Carplus for mixing this episode. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. 
Make sure you're subscribed to the show, your friends too. Connect with us on Instagram or Twitter at StoryBoundPod. Let us know what you thought of season three so far. We've got a couple more episodes left, a few bonus ones, and a lot of great stuff ahead that we can't wait to share with you. Thank you so much for listening. New episodes every Tuesday. See you then. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.